0: Hello and welcome to the Gladstones Land podcast from the National Trust for Scotland, Episode 5, Edinburgh's Infamous Characters. Well, hello. Hello, hi. I'm Thomas. And I'm
1: Kate. And here we are once again on the Gladstones Land podcast. Um, What are we going to be talking about today?
0: So we're going to be talking about some of the darker characters of Edinburgh's past. Um, Uh, Some of the interesting, gory, entertaining stories that we have associated with um, some of our more more notorious residents.
1: I don't know whether this is the case in every city uh, that you go to, but you quite often find when people are talking about the history of Edinburgh on the, the numerous walking tours and things like that that we have here people are always talking about the infamous characters mm-hmm. um, particular figures from the, the grimy underworld.
0: Uh, and they, it's they, because they're such great stories and so that's really what we're concentrating on.
1: In particular they seem to influence um, apart from anything else Edinburgh's pub culture uh, as we'll hear quite a little later on in the episode we've got pubs in, in in town named after a lot of these mm-hmm. uh, these relevant uh, historical figures, so <laughs> there you go. We have our own infamous character at uh, Gladstone's Absolutely. Land. Uh, we've talked about some of the people who lived here already on the podcast, no- notably, obviously, uh, Thomas Gladstone, um, the, the, the building's namesake.
0: <laughs> should I should add. A pretty upstanding citizen, certainly in comparison yes, to uh, not, some of
1: the he's, some of the people we're talking about. He's today. not an infamous character. Um, we have mentioned William Struthers, haven't mm-hmm. we? The the minister who was also a witch hunter.
0: Well, he wasn't strictly a witch hunter, but he was certainly involved in some of the witch trials. Okay,
1: um, but the person the, the person we're going to talk about first on the podcast today is Sir James Crichton of Fendraught? Uh, Fend- Fendraft, draft. Fendraft,
0: Fendraft. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I I can't say it the correct Scots way. I had some people on my tour yesterday who, uh, who corrected, corrected my you. pronunciation. Well, sure um, I haven't happens. quite got, quite got that sound right, but friend draft is I think the closest I'm going to get with an English accent.
1: Sir James Crichton is our flagship character at Gladstone's Land. Is that right?
0: In some ways. I mean, he's a really interesting character and he inhabited the property at a period uh, that we know quite a lot about it. So we have um, a large portion of our first floor set up in a period sort of around the 1630s. And we know that Crichton was living in the rooms on the first floor that we have set up between... 1631 and 1634. So uh, he's a, he's a great story. Uh, he's very Game of Thrones, I think, actually, his story. <laughs> um, so so we we like him in that respect, but also he does tie in very closely with sort of the historical setup that we've got.
1: So tell us about Sir James Crichton of fendraft.
0: uh He is um, so he he's a landowner up in Aberdeenshire, um, has a castle there, fendraft uh, and he is the sort of gentleman that gets himself into fights. And one of those is with a neighbouring family, uh, the Gordons of Rothamay. And uh, they actually have a, a long running dispute about fishing rights. It's not, it no, doesn't, doesn't seem deeply important. It, to it doesn't seem deeply
1: important, but lots of disputes in Aberdeenshire were about fishing at that time. I've read um, there's, a, there's a, there was a whole Ph.D. thesis. This is slightly. Yeah. Bigger, <laughs> uh, a, 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 well, yeah, I, my, I did my master's thesis was on an Aberdeen. Sheer um, nobleman called Sir William Knollys, mm-hmm. the, the one of the last commanders of the Knights of St John in Scotland, and as as part of my work on this, I read the, an entire PhD thesis. About, entitled uh, Burgesses and Landed Men about the disputes between the merchants of Aberdeen and the nobles of the countryside over fishing rights on the <laughs> River Dee. So there you go.
0: Who knew? Uh,
1: they've been falling out about fishing in Aberdeenshire for <laughs> centuries before <laughs> Sir James Crichton. A really so long time. Goodness. There you go.
0: So, yeah, fishing rights. The two families had a number of scuffles, uh, and actually, they escalate to such an extent that in one of those interactions, the Laird of Rothermay is killed. Uh, now, everybody realises that it's all gone a bit far. Uh, and the Marquis of Huntley gets involved and he tells the two families that they need to sort out their differences. He's another sort of large local landowner. Uh, There's also an incident, which is sort of relevant later in the story, which regards a gentleman called John Meldrum. um, And he's been a long-time supporter of the Crichton family. uh, And so in the aftermath of this incident, uh, he decides really that the Crichtons ought to be paying him for his support. He he hadn't hadn't been associating with them. He, he wasn't really there for the killing. Um, and the Crichtons say that they're unwilling to pay him. And he actually gets very angry. And he makes a whole series of threats against the Crichton family. Uh, and he's later caught trying to steal horses off them, we assume by way of revenge. Uh, he comes back later, so, re- so remember him. But so Marcus of Huntley pulls the two families together and they do sort out their differences. Um, And then they uh, they have a a meal, a a feast to celebrate in Crichton's castle in French Draft Uh, that night. And and a number of the Rothermay family stay over. It gets late. And that night there is a fire uh, and a big portion of the castle burns down. Uh, The Crichton family all escape. Um, A number of the Rothermays actually die in the fire, including the new laird of Rothermay, the, the young man who's taken the title. Now, local opinion was absolutely that the Crichtons did it. Uh, and we know this because there is a surviving ballad from the period uh, called The Fire of Friend Draft, um, which is wonderfully over the top. It describes the, the Mays in their tower, surrounded by smoke, heroically going to meet their maker, singing psalms. And it describes Lady Elizabeth, Crichton's wife, standing on the green in front of the castle, shouting up that she's locked them in and she's throwing the key down the well. Right. That uh, couldn't get much clearer than that. No, absolutely. Now, Crichton uh, wasn't particularly keen on this level of popular sentiment being against him, and so he actually contacted the authorities in Edinburgh and asked them to intervene and to investigate. Um, they respond to this by pulling in two of Crichton's servants for interrogation. Now, at this point, interrogation often meant torture. Quite right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, under... Sort of as part of the interrogation one of the servants tells the authorities that the night of the fire he saw John Meldrum lurking about the castle. Now we actually don't know the, any of the rights and wrongs of, of any of this we, we only have the surviving documentation to go on but we do know that John Meldrum is pulled in he's questioned he's tried and he's convicted and he's actually hanged um, outside St Giles Cathedral in 1633. Uh, so we have Crichton uh, up in Edinburgh living in Gladstone's Land um, basically trying to sort the whole mess out he's there because his servants are incarcerated he's there because he's questioned and then of course he's there for the trial um, so he, um, his, his wife and children actually go and live somewhere else and lie low there but he is based in Gladstone's Land on and off for a good part of that period
1: do we know what happened to him after that? Do we know whether he got his castle back? And
0: so they actually put in quite a lot of effort to rebuilding parts of the castle. But he has a huge amount of problems in the aftermath um, with other local landowning families trying to raid his lands um, because he's up in Edinburgh trying to sort out the, the sort of the trial and things. Um, and then in his absence, other families try and move in on his land. He does mostly manage to defend them, but he um, he then. I think it's actually Crichton that there's some questions over his death but I'm not 100% sure of that story Absolutely. either but certainly his legacy survives and some of his um, sort of uh, direct descendants go on to be quite famous in other capacities.
1: So there you have it the, uh, the the famous or infamous story of Sir James Crichton of Fendraft and the fire of Fendraft Castle. Mm-hmm, indeed. Um, and one of our uh, as I said what not one one of the notable characters that we talk about here on in Gladstone's Land, and actually the the, the historic house is laid out largely as his apartment, mm-hmm, isn't it? it? Is, that's yes. the idea anyway, that the three main rooms are supposed to be Crichton's bedchamber and dining room, the kitchen and his study, or yes. the Laird's study, as we Indeed, evocatively yeah. call it. And <laughs> Rather
0: there. romantically, I think. <laughs> there you
1: have it. Um, an interesting little detail that's always included in the tour, probably conjecture, but prob- may well have been true, is that uh, we, the, the tour guides tell you about the windows in James Crichton's uh, bedchamber, which um, you they have uh, shutters that you would open out and look out onto the street. And the story that's always told on the tour is that uh, if you stick your head out the window, you can see down to uh, the at the front of, the, of St Giles where the execution would have taken place so no doubt when John Meldrum was hanged uh, Sir James Crichton was there hanging out the window watching I mean it may well be true would great <laughs> I story. mean
0: you can certainly see the, the area that uh, the, the hanging would have taken place
1: so there we are, uh, just one of the many exciting characters who we talk about not only on the Gladstone's Land tour but in, uh, in the, the history of the Old Town in general and so, uh, so coming up uh, in a minute, we've got a conversation with, with Martin Webster, one of mm-hmm. our tour guides here, uh, and one of our members of staff here at Gladstone's Land, who's a real expert on, on some of these infamous characters. So, uh, so we'll leave it there. And we're here recording with... Martin Webster, who is one of the members of staff here at Gladstone's Land, and uh, particularly knowledgeable about the history of the old town, so who are welcome, Martin. Oh, how you doing? Um, now, I um, I understand that as well as working here, you you also have or have had in the past your own walking tour of Edinburgh. Is that right?
2: Correct. Yes. Could right. you
1: tell us a bit about that?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So my walking tour is called Stroll Through Time. And that's been going since May 2016. So, and it's just, uh, yeah, as the name suggests, a stroll around the Old Town of Edinburgh from the museum.
0: That sounds very uh, very pleasant. It does, day. yes.
2: A historical stroll. That's, that's the feedback again. It's a <laughs> relaxed, pleasant walk around the Old Town. And it's a very small walking tour, so it generally is two of us <laughs> strolling around the Old Town. Very much a small group affair, um, which is what I like about it. Um, and yeah. we've all seen the large walking tours that kind of yes. get dragged around uh, especially past this building <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so yeah so a very um yeah kind of uh, close experience um and really yeah just talking about the general history of the old town starting at the museum on chamber street up the royal mile down to the grass market up to grey fires um, just talking about the general history and also a few of the famous characters and I've lived in this area 30 years.
0: And that's what we're here for today, and I am very excited by that, <laughs> because I feel like I don't actually know a huge amount about right. some of them. Yeah, you, you one you often, particularly you'll find
1: with the history of Edinburgh, people like to talk about these infamous characters, um, perhaps because they are uh, were especially notable or, or, or infamous for their... Um, role in the city's history but also maybe because they are in some way representative of something about the ethos of the city you often hear um people talking about two edinburgh's don't you there's the the glamorous uh, stately edinburgh of the overworld and then there's the grimy uh, grisly um, Edinburgh of the underworld, almost, you have the the Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde versions of Edinburgh, and people, some of the people that we're perhaps going to talk about today definitely represent the Mr Hyde... I, side I of the city
0: some of them very directly actually which well, m- yeah. might be a great point to jump off with you,
2: Deacon Brodie. You, you couldn't have set me up better <laughs> <laughs> for my first character oh it's almost you're... like I planned it <laughs> yeah <laughs> almost uh, yeah of course Edinburgh you know it's is a very respectable city but when you don't have to look too uh, too far back in the past uh, to realise it wasn't always like that at least it was on one side but it wasn't on the other so it is you know, classically known as a tale of two towns um, you know, a lot of it, that is in relation to the new town, where respect the respectable folk moved to from the old town. Um, and a character that really kind of embodies that is um, William Deacon Brodie, uh, who lived in the, around about the late 18th century. Uh, yeah, classic and the, the inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's novel. Mm-hmm. So uh, tell us about Deacon Brodie. Well, Deacon Brodie, yeah, William Deacon Brodie lived um, well directly across the road from Gladstone's oh. where we are now, down Brodie's Close. Uh, although the house is is no longer there, uh, there is a lovely little cafe there, that, yes, has, yes. that has a history. <laughs> in it. There certainly is. Um, yeah, so he 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 was the classic respectable gentleman during the day. Why is he called deacon? Deacon was um, the heads of the incorporated trades at the time, uh, the crafts, if mm. you like. So you hear sort of a few variations of it, sort of deacon councillor that kind of thing, Burgesses. Um there were there were powerful men at the time I suppose who who ran the corporate trade sorry incorporated trades and professional bodies of the crafts. So if you're a member of those your kind of work carried a bit of weight about it. It's about kind of maintaining standards of those trades that were rolled out to, to folk around the area. Um, also as a, a deacon you generally sat pretty high up in the local town council. As well. So he effectively ran the city, if you like. So, very prestigious position. So you can imagine Deacon Rody walking around the old town in his uh, fantastic, wonderful, well turned out clothes, looking every inch a respectable person. But of course, at night time, it was said to be a very different story.
0: So, what was he doing?
2: Well, he was doing a number of things that he shouldn't have been doing <laughs> and kind of things that well, we might see as harmless today, but gambling. Um, but also, there's more, yeah, I mean, yeah, more sinister stuff. Uh, as well, Um, generally drinking and gambling Um, although apparently he wasn't very good at the gambling Um, and you can imagine some of the den of iniquities he was hanging out in, you'd end up losing money to the kind of folk that you didn't really want to cross more than anything else so...
0: And is it true that he also stole money from some of his rich clients, or is that a bit of a misnomer?
2: Um, no, that's tr- in the sense that um, he'd move on, to actually off the back of owing money to people, he'd need mm-hmm. to earn more income. Despite being as rich as he was, He's head of the, the incorporated trade of Edinburgh Rights and Masons, which is really just kind of generally sort of joiners, carpenters, locksmiths, they weren't really too specific in themselves back then. Um, so he would end up uh, burgling the houses of folk around the area to pay off his his debts and a lot of those may well have involved Um, uh, friends I suppose they would have had um, the big houses with the possessions inside so that would have made sense Um, I mean the genius of it all is that he was a locksmith so he would simply make copies of the keys during the day (laughs) uh, like wax impressions I believe it was Uh, and then didn't so much burgle the houses at night let himself, I let himself in. in. That was generally <laughs> how the how the story goes.
1: Um, and that was eventually the source of his downfall, wasn't it? That he, he
2: it, was caught. That's right. Yeah. I mean, this apparently this continued throughout the seventeen eighties. Um, for a, quite a while um, and people always and naturally you think bang, well how on earth did he kind of get away with that but again as the story goes you was such a respectable gentleman like the pillar of society and community again sitting at this town council having a lot of influence and power uh, and no one possibly thought it could have been him uh, and his gang of burglars and there's four of them in total However, they did uh, get a little bit too confident, a little bit too cocky, and attempted to burgle the King's Customs and Excise House, which is oh. down in the Canningate. Um So that was a big job. Um,
0: a bit like pulling a bank job Yeah, now. absolutely, yeah,
2: absolutely. The,
1: uh, the tax office. You know, <laughs> don't, don't mess with HBC. <laughs> they...
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, and, yeah, they, they, would, they would ultimately get caught. One of the um, his gang... Would actually turn King's evidence on Brody for that burglary. Um, King's evidence was just when you kind of turn yourself into i sure, you know—turn yourself into the police or the, the sheriff at that time, or a town guard, as they were known—and um, really implicated Brody uh, in that. So, so, so he
1: wasn't actually caught breaking an entry. Not at one the time. Of, no. One of his one of his accomplices ratted him out.
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, none of them were caught that evening. They all managed to kind of get away before they were caught. Uh, the alarm was kind of raised. Um, the story again goes that um, I think they only escaped with £16 in petty cash. <laughs> yeah, they'd failed to locate the drawer with the £600, but they're really kind of after the big bounty. So they, they fled and um, they went back to Brody's house and they thought it's okay, it's okay, we, we managed to get away with it. Um, you know, we'll, we'll maybe try again later, we'll let things kind of calm down a little bit. But then, apparently, the next morning, one of the burglars did actually turn himself in, and he had the idea being that this burglar had a long career criminal record, and he thought by turning himself in, he could maybe broker some kind of deal with the local constabulary uh, that would, you know, give him a, a reduced sentence if he gave up Brody and the, the other two sort of fellows that were involved too. Um, and so, what what fate befell
1: Deacon Brody? Well,
2: Brody managed to actually initially escape all the way down to Amsterdam. Uh, he fled. He fled the city. The other two burglars were arrested and held um, up at the the toll booth uh, just by St Giles, where the prison was back in those days. But Brody did actually manage to escape. He made it as far as Amsterdam as well. And his plan was actually to go over to North America and start a new life. But apparently he wrote three letters. One of the letters was to his brother-in-law back in Edinburgh, uh, really detailing actually what had happened, but more to arrange his affairs uh, to get his money in order and then kind of send it over to him uh, in North America so he could start this new life. Uh, and he gave the letter somewhat naively to some passengers returning from Amsterdam to Edinburgh. And they recognised Grody's brother in law's address. I mean, Edinburgh was a, was a small town. So they opened the letters, read them, effectively a signed confession, if you like, dealing, the detailing everything that happened. Got back to Edinburgh, but this time it was all over the press and the news. Uh, they handed it in to the local police. Um, and through engaging with the British consulate in Amsterdam, they managed to track Brody down in an Amsterdam ale tavern. It was said the night he was due to get on his ship to North America, so apparently he nearly made it away. Uh, they got him, they said they actually managed to track him down to a cupboard upstairs in an Amsterdam <laughs> ale tavern. That sounds like way too much detail for nearly 250 years ago, so we'll settle for an ale tavern. Uh, dragged him back to Edinburgh, uh, he was put on trial, uh, he was found guilty. It was said to be a pretty quick case. And they had the letters, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they also went round to his house where he found all the copies of all the keys to all the shops and houses around the old town, <laughs> um, as well as all the instruments and implements were actually used in that as well. So it was said to be a pretty open and shut case. He was found guilty and he was sentenced to be hanged on the 8th of October, 1788. On the gallows, he'd actually helped design as a cabinet maker and funded as a member of the town council, ironically, if that's the right use of the word, ironically.
0: Now, I've heard a wonderful story that suggests that he had a plan to survive his hanging. He did, yes. Um, d- do we think it was successful? I understand that there were alleged sightings in, in Paris the following week after his...
2: Yeah, there were, you're right, there have been alleged sightings. Not a bit much. like Elvis. Yeah, yeah, very similar, I suppose, yeah. Um, as far as I'm, the reading I've done, there, there's no weight to that, but... <laughs> He did, he did have a plan, you're right, he did have a plan. His plan was in those days when you were hanged, you basically dropped 15 feet, snapped your neck, and died. Mm. So he actually wore a steel collar around his neck, which he hoped would help protect him. He then arranged for his friends, um, his dodgy friends, to cut him down afterwards and then drag him round to a French doctor's house in the Cowgate to try and revive him. Because so, ordinarily you were left to kind of hang there. Mm-hmm. Uh, for at least a few hours, really, as a you know uh, a message to the folk Ooh. around the old town, as this is what happens, you know, when you come out crying, very visible message. Um, now, as it happened, he had the steel collar that, like I say, he got his friends to bribe the hangman to ignore the collar. Uh, and hangmen were essentially criminals held in the Tolbooth prison, so they were open to a bribe. <laughs> um, so that was kind of covered. Um, and like I say, they then cut them down and try and revive them later on. As it turned out, at the third attempt, admittedly, uh, he was hanged, he dropped 15 feet, he snapped his neck, and he died. It was all for nothing. It was actually said at the time, that, uh, saying by folk around that area, that he could cheat the folk of the old town, but he couldn't cheat death. So it's kind of summed up. And like I say, he was inspiration for Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, The Strange Case of Dr Jekyll and Mr Hyde. Um, There you
1: are. And actually, one... um uh, well, the only the only confirmed sighting of of Deacon Brodie that you 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 have after his death uh, is just around the corner from here. You can go and see that ghastly model of him uh, <laughs> in, the, uh, in the window of Deacon Brodie's pub, can't you? That's right. So, uh, <laughs> terrifying. <laughs> so, so Pretty that's um, so he's probably one of the most famous uh, Edinburgh infamous characters. Mm. We uh, speaking of. Um, Cowgate doctors, but also uh, speaking of the shady underworld of uh, 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 the the less fashionable parts of Edinburgh, you talked about ale houses or, or dens of ill repute mm-hmm. that he might have gone to that um, reminds me of uh, other sort of, uh, dark goings on in the, uh, in, the, in the cowgate or the in the closes of, of of lower Edinburgh and reminds me of the story of Burke and Hare yeah, so you can tell us a bit more about them.
2: Absolutely, yeah. So, well, Burke and Hare, uh, well, they were Irish. Um, they came the County Tyrone, I think it was, and they came over to Scotland's Kind of, I think it's round about kind of eighteen fifteen, eighteen seventeen, round about then, to be navvies uh, working the Union Canal between Edinburgh and Glasgow. So they didn't come over together; they came over individually, and <laughs> their uh, partnership formed already. Yeah. <laughs> and um, through a, a series of circumstances and events uh, they would uh, eventually meet up at a time in the early 19th century when the University of Edinburgh's medical anatomy department was really kind of flourishing um, you know doctors were kind of leading the way uh, in medical research. Um, I think the rule at the time I'm not exactly sure that the doctors were only allowed bodies of murderers who'd been executed and that was the, the rule or the law. Um, which didn't meet what they required. They needed far more bodies to practise on so they could pioneer this research. Um, So, body snatchers uh, developed. um, And body snatchers would essentially attend the funerals in graveyards around the city um, during the day and then return in the evening under the cover of darkness to to dig up these freshly buried graves and deliver those bodies uh, via the cowgate. Uh, so we have the South Bridge today, which has various vaults and cellars underneath there, and you can still take walking tours that will take you into them. Um, they're where people lived and worked, where all the workshops were, but they also acted as a halfway house as well, where the body snatchers stored the bodies, before then taking them up the hill to the anatomy department, which is where the old college is at the University of Edinburgh. Um, so body snatchers, uh, grave robbers, uh, or resurrection men, as they were known. <laughs> I mean, that was more, <laughs> that was more the doctors and actual people who were doing the dirty work. Um, but it's a very kind of enlightenment term, I suppose, at that point. Uh, Burke and Hare were actually the most famous body snatchers, never to be body snatchers, because they never robbed graves. Um, it was far worse than they did, I suppose. They actually murdered people uh, and then delivered those bodies to the university. So they would essentially hang around in the pubs and taverns, like you say, in the Cowgate, the Grass Market. They actually lived in the Westport area um, and they'd get people drunk. Uh, they were said to be very charming. Um, they'd invite them back to their lodgings and then they would uh, suffocate them through a technique that became known as burking. My so fingers over the nose. Did
0: not know that. Yeah,
2: so what is that? You yeah. you have put the two
1: fingers over the nose and the the thumb under That's the right. chin to exactly. stop them from breathing. Exactly.
2: Yeah. And one of them would do that. Another one would kind of put their knee in their chest to kind of hold them down. And then. And
0: how many people the did they kill? Well, there's
2: there's no exact figure. It's said to be anywhere between fifteen and thirty, I believe.
0: So they were. Yeah, pretty, pretty busy.
2: Absolutely, yeah. I think the first one they killed was a, an old man who was staying in their lodgings, and he couldn't pay his rent, and he died actually. So they didn't kill him; he died. And they saw an opportunity when no one turned up to his funeral to go. Oh, we can maybe just take his body. No one's going to, going to notice. And that's generally how how their victims were targeted. Mm-hmm. It was people who were at a time folk were coming down to Edinburgh mm-hmm. to work in the city to then send money back to their families. These are the kind of folk that would be missed. And that's very much Hugh in here, really, kind of. And obviously women would feature highly in that list as well, it's easier. Um, and yeah, they were charging about £9, £10 a body. So
0: they were making a fairly good return on their yeah, uh, exploits.
2: It's said to be, one book I read said it'd be anywhere between 650 and and £1,000 in today's money, so it was, it was very good money.
0: How did they get caught
2: eventually? It was actually Burke that slipped up uh, in the ends. He murdered an old Irish lady whose name escapes me at the moment, possibly Mary or Margaret Doherty, and he stored her body underneath the bed in his lodgings and covered it with straw. But two of the lodgers who were staying with him at the time, it's very much an active lodging house, um, discovered her body underneath the bed, and uh, reported to the police I suppose kind of had their suspicions mm-hmm. by this point. This has been going on for you know a year now. People were going missing and they had maybe been slid up a couple times already. You know, maybe sort of a couple of folk that were a bit more kind of well-known around the area gone missing. Anyway, the police came down. Um, I think by this point, Burke had managed to be tipped off and taken the body up to university. But they eventually caught up with him um, and arrested him um, and took him in for questioning. Of course, the first thing he did was he implicated his partner here, uh, who were both involved, And to cut a long story short, Hare actually ended up turning King's evidence on Burke uh, and basically put it on Burke. So it was all him, it was nothing to do with me. Now, unbelievably, unbelievably, the police actually went along with this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And mainly because uh, they thought, well, we might as well get one person, um, even if we can't get the two. I suppose without. The evidence from
1: the one, they couldn't convict the other because there was no hard evidence for what they'd been doing.
2: Exactly, yeah. All the bodies have been dissected by the doctors at the university. I mean, there was no uh, forensic science or, you know, um, um, yeah, uh, CSI <laughs> back yeah. in those days, effectively. <laughs> so it was hard to get, folk. Um, so yeah, so the police went along for this, and of course, I went to trial uh, on Christmas Eve. a jolly time to do it and uh, I mean it was a complete stitch up on Burke really you know because uh, Burke was turning King's evidence and one of the things about doing that is you want to come across across cleaner and clean if you like you know because so he would um, not so much exaggerate but you know certain questions wouldn't have been asked of him Mm -hmm. not too difficult questions certain witnesses were called forwards other ones weren't Um, And, yeah, Burke Burke was found guilty and ultimately went, was hanged for it. And am I right in thinking that
1: you, um, that in in another ultimate irony, Burke was then handed over to be dissected?
2: That's right, yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah.
1: What
0: happened to Hare? Did he walk free?
2: Well, again, yeah, he did, yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah, um, Again, no one knows what happened here. <laughs> Disappeared. There, were, yeah, there are various stories. I think the most commonly mentioned one is that he died a blind beggar down in London after falling into a lime pit. Um, there are other stories that he fought in the American Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, my girlfriend's father you now lives up in Applecross, up in Wester Ross, in the far north. There's not going to be the sightings of him up there. Um, <laughs> Why not? Yeah. I think we can last trace his whereabouts to roundabout Carlisle, mm-hmm. where he's meant to have be been nearly lynched by a mob. You know, again, he was said to have escaped Edinburgh under the cover of darkness in a mail coach. You know, made it down to Carlisle. A mob spotted him. But the police took him into a cell for his own protection. And he was then released early the next morning to basically go off in this Hello. very way. So London would seem likely, you know, where he goes from then, who knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: The third person in the Burke and Hare story is the Doctor, isn't it, mm-hmm. who they sold the bodies to. Do we know anything about him? Yeah, so that was Doctor Robert Knox.
2: Um, uh, Knox. That was <laughs> another, yeah. <your> emulation. <laughs> yeah, I don't know think so. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. Um, yes, yeah, so thought Robert Knox was apparently, um, you know, typically like charming, you know, he was a, a great uh, lecturer, you know, students were meant to flock to his lectures, um, you, know, you know, made an absolute fortune. Um, and yeah, I'd, through one way or another, I'm not exactly too sure, uh, developed this relationship with Birkin here, who were his suppliers uh, of bodies, and he
0: he must have known something of what was yeah, going on.
2: Absolutely, yeah. and that, that's again the general consensus of whatever you read is that they were they were well aware of what was going on. Uh, it was you know most of the time for these police doctors it was their students who were turning up you know with the bodies mm-hmm. having you know oh done gosh. the grave robbing. You know so they so they wanted they wanted lectures, and then for lectures they needed bodies. So, um, but certainly Burke and Hare were probably a bit more kind of sinister characters, um, and naturally because of what they were doing. But, uh, but Knox was very well aware of that, and he, and he paid them good money to, like I say, because these bodies were fresh. That's the advantage they had over the grave robbers is that they hadn't been underground. Uh, so therefore Spark here could charge more for their bodies mm. because they were fresher. And so. Knox appreciated that.
0: So I uh, visited the Carlton Hill Cemetery a few weeks ago. Um, And I I don't know if you've seen the amazing tower there is there. So if you walk around the cemetery, they've actually, when they put it in, in the 19th century, they built a tower at one end of it Mm. because grave robbing was such a problem Mm -hmm. that they wanted to assure people that, were going to bury family members there that actually the graves weren't going to be robbed so they put in this tower that you can see the whole cemetery from and they employed a family to live in it mm-hmm. and to essentially be on watch during the night to prevent those graves being uh, being robbed
2: yeah good to, go to a lot of cemeteries and you will see these kind of little watchtowers. affect by like gravefire just never got one come yeah. across them
0: before yeah I was Fascinating.
2: The got a wee one, and you walk in. I mean, families were said to, you know, like you say, take guard over mm-hmm. their, you know, family members who'd been buried for for days, if not weeks, so the bodies had decomposed enough, that it was said, that they thought they'd be of no use to the grave robbers. Uh, also, you see kind of mort-safes and these kind of grand mausoleums as well, kind of gates and... You know, locks—all designed to protect. It was a religious site as well, obviously.
1: A lot of the mort safes that you see—that sort of walled, uh, walled areas around the graves—they've got bars over the top, isn't it? But that's quite right, often, yeah. you'll even see that the bars have been one bar has been removed. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I heard that of um, that Cannongate Kirk. I heard okay. a statistic that something like less than half of the graves are actually occupied, because they right. suspect that so many. Had been, uh, had been robbed. I've Sobering
2: thought, yeah. yeah. It was a
0: huge yeah. trade, wasn't it? An absolute... Uh, oh, yeah. ...this point with this growing medical school.
2: Well, I mean, Edward, have, again, the medical school was, you know, apparently um, producing more doctors than anywhere else in the world, mm-hmm. in the same way as students came from all over the world to go there. Um, so it's very much uh, a business as well as... And I'm guessing that uh, Dr Knox uh, also walked free he did unsurprisingly yes <laughs> he, um, although he had to leave Edinburgh uh, uh, no one wanted to like. attend his lectures anymore so, apparently he went down to London um, did a few lectures down there but then kind of sort of fizzled fizzled um. out really after after
1: that unsurprisingly the respectable fellow walked
2: free yeah common theme um,
1: Deacon Brody and Birkin and Hare, have you got any other uh, any other favourites, anyone favourites else, particular characters?
0: Um
2: let me think. Yeah, one character I quite like actually, um, is George Herriot. Um, or the Jingling Geordie. No, as he was I known. Okay, Jingling Geordie. Yeah, he's he's quite a good one. He's he was around in the, the late sixteenth uh, century, uh, so quite a while back. And he was basically again a bit like Deacon Brodie. He was the head of an incorporated trade um, of goldsmiths. Uh-huh. So, um, so being the head of a trade, he was a you know he was a very wealthy gentleman. Um, as you said, to have kind of strutted around the old town, and again his fine garb, that kind of thing. And he was essentially the jeweller uh, to King James VI of Scotland. Mm-hmm. Um, so a very lucrative. Mm -hmm. Uh, Profession. He was also their money lender as well. So, again, by what reading I've done is that they weren't very good at paying him for the jewellery he was providing them (laughs) with, (laughs) being kings and queens. uh, He'd end up just, like, lending them money, essentially. I think King James VI liked his parting, especially towards his later years in life. Uh, But anyway, he did make a lot of money through the rest of the rich folk around uh, the Old Town area. Um, then in 1603, there was uh, the Union of Crowns, uh, when it was King James VI of Scotland, became King James I of England, and there was said to be a big kind of procession down the Royal Mile, and all the, the landed gentry would come in from the countryside into the city to celebrate this fact, and basically, George Heriot said, provided all these rich folk with their jewellery. You know, he made an absolute fortune, really, even more money he'd already accumulated. Uh, I mean, it was already the wealthiest profession in the country at that time. Uh, he would then follow James down to London, um, expand his business down there, make, make even more money uh, already. Uh, and he would die around about 1623 to 1624, around about then. And his family effectively predeceased him. So he had mm-hmm. no one to leave his fortune to. So he left about twenty-three thousand pounds, about which, which is, is a
0: phenomenal amount. It. It's
2: said to be, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's said to be like several tens of millions of pounds in today's money uh, to build George Heriot's School, which is ah. just along the road from this mm-hmm. building, along Lauriston Place, and it was a school set up for the the orphans of Edinburgh, um, George Heriot's Hospital. Uh, so it was a real kind of charitable gesture at a time when children were being uh, you know, abandoned in the streets, it was said, because families couldn't afford to feed them, it would give them uh, a roof over their heads, it give them food, clothing and an education. It was a real charitable gesture at that time. Um, but yeah, so George George Heriot was certainly founded at school uh, through his generous donation. Um, Dying in um, early 17th century. Imagine that
0: was the first of the kind in Edinburgh at that date because that wasn't really a, an idea that uh, sort of emerged until the 1550s. So
2: Yeah, yeah, I suppose it would have been, yeah. I think about it now. So, um, yeah, so it was. Um, so, yeah, so he's known as the jingling Geordie. Uh, no one really knows why. Uh, there's one of the tales going round, which almost certainly isn't true, but it's quite funny. is that apparently as you walked around the old town, you could hear a jingling of coins in his pocket that would spill onto the streets. <laughs> no, and... It's just got so much you can throw to it. <laughs> you know that, exactly, Goodness, yeah. wouldn't I
0: like to have that problem?
2: Why, <laughs> yeah. uh, why Geordie? Well, that's another good point. Again, we're not entirely sure, but like, one of the things I read is that it was kind of maybe more George, um, sorry James the sixth, perhaps ignorance. Um, you know, being from Edinburgh was near Newcastle. <laughs> it was all kind of generally the same area, and that's quite tenuous. Oh, but see, so
1: what, when he went down to London, everybody thought, "Oh, Newcastle, Scotland, they're all in the north." Yeah, they're all <laughs> kind of like, yeah,
2: I, I, along, yeah, definitely along those lines. Uh, but again, it's, it, yeah something like that <laughs> but we're not exactly quite, sure
0: quite a nice positive note to to round up on there i think yeah, where's uh, death <laughs> yeah, absolutely as
1: well as uh, as, uh, as well as the, the the dark underworld we also had some 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 good characters mm-hmm. who, absolutely. Uh, who made important yeah. contributions
2: yeah the balance so, so there we yeah.
1: go i mean i'm i'm desperate to hear martin's uh, three guests for the dinner yes. party now after we've heard of these uh, uh, these dastardly characters from Edinburgh's history. So, who 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 are you going to invite to our uh, our imaginary dinner party?
2: Yeah, so these ones are not quite as old. Uh, I mean, I love all history, but I do quite like the nineteen twenties uh, American history. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the mafia, the Prohibition era. Um, So my dinner guess would be Al Capone, (laughs) uh, Charles Lucky Luciano, um, Bugsy Siegel. Whether I would survive that dinner, I'm, I'm not too sure. I have some, I have some concerns <laughs> yeah, about it's, it's what risky. would happen. It's risky, but I would love to find out more about that. Um, would you make them leave their guns at the door? I would <laughs> definitely do that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> would they be willing to tell you more about what they've done? Well, probably not, no, but I just, I just, um, just love that situation. I'd love to be in that situation. Well, certainly fascinating, if yeah. dangerous. <laughs> yeah, for me, certainly. Well, but... we,
1: we've had a few dangerous people so far. We had uh, Francis Walsingham, oh, Elizabeth yeah. the first spy, spy master, master. Yeah, first yeah. episode. And we've had a couple of uh, uh, women who dressed as soldiers and or pirates. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, think Al Capone yeah. would be in good company. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming to talk to us today.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for letting me talk to you.
1: Well, that was great. Great to hear from Martin. Great to hear about some mm-hmm. of the infamous characters.
0: So I enjoyed that. Um, I didn't know a lot about some of them.
1: One other person I thought we might have mentioned was Maggie Dixon. Do you know? Have you heard of Maggie Dixon?
0: Is she the one who's half...
1: Half-hanged Maggie, yes. yes. This is again someone who is would feature on a infamous person's pub crawl because down the grass market there's a Maggie Dixon's pub. Mm-hmm. She was... One of she was apparently a fishwife, the wife of a fisherman uh, who used to come in every day and sell fish on Fishmonger's Close. Mm-hmm. And one day, apparently her she found that her husband had left her. She got um, she got in with another man uh, and had a. Um, uh, had a baby which was uh, illegal and mm-hmm. so the bait that she, she was discovered concealing the pregnancy was tried and executed and sort of hanged uh on um on grass market outside where maggie dixon's pub now is uh the story goes that she survived the hanging as people sometimes did and as the uh the body was being taken away in the coffin uh they, they put her in the coffin and um uh, they heard a knocking from inside the coffin and opened it up and she gave them all a fright by being still alive. And this presented the town council with a problem because although uh, they she had been convicted of uh, of concealing pregnancy and adultery and so ought to have been executed, uh, she was very popular with the Edinburgh locals.
0: And I suppose they'd already carried out the sentence. Yeah,
1: exactly. This was how they got a, got around it, that they said, well, we don't want to uh, go through the public embarrassment of executing her again. And so technically she was uh, condemned to be hanged and she has been. And so they, did, so they let her off. And apparently she continued the, le- the rest of her life as legally dead uh, <laughs> and was known as Half-Hangit Maggie. And so, so there you go. You have that, that another one of these notable characters. What's next? Uh, your emails. Mm-hmm. Now, we have an email from listener Mary in Bedford who asks the following question. Uh, Does Gladstone's land have anything to do with the Prime Minister, William Gladstone? Uh, Any thoughts on that? Uh,
0: Well, the answer is not as far as we're aware. Uh, We we actually get asked this quite a lot um, in the building, anyway.
1: I suppose he's the only other, he's the only famous Gladstone, isn't he? Uh,
0: So, as far as we're aware, um, our Gladstone, the the families aren't related. Um, William Gladstone was actually born in England, although he did have sort of Scots Mm. descent. Um, But yeah, as far as we're aware, there is no connection.
1: Did the, the Gladstone as in Thomas Gladstone? Did the name die out? All of, were all of his within a couple of generations. All of his male line descendants had had died. So, yeah, that the right? house
0: actually passes on to I think his granddaughters eventually. So, or sort of the, the spouses of his granddaughters. Because we
1: have we have a fairly good family tree and know that various descendants of Gladstone. Um, controlled the building later on but none of them had that name did they so i always assume the name died out um prime minister william ewart gladstone does have some uh, scottish or Edim- and indeed edinburgh connections though he was the mp for midlothian uh and i think at the time uh midlothian may have included edinburgh so he was <laughs> certainly a local um or or had had a local connection and uh, he he's supposed to have fought the The first modern election campaign in Midlothian, I think mm-hmm. it's known to history as his the Midlothian campaign um, in 1880 or or something something like that. He he fought uh, he fought an election campaign much more as we now have it, where he had hustings and he mm-hmm. gave public debates and that sort of thing. This was just after the third um, Enfranchisement Act, where all householders had been given the vote. So not everybody, but all people who c- were... Certainly not women at this yeah, stage. Yes, <laughs> certainly not women. Um, but all all men who were head of their own household had been enfranchised in, 70, in 1876 or something like that. And so this was the first or one of the first elections where many people were eligible to vote. And he, he had a campaign where he held public uh, meetings and hustings and things like that. The Midlothian campaign. William Gladstone. The other thing is, I think I believe he was responsible for re- getting a new a replacement for the Mercat Cross. Do you know the Mercat Cross? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, in the the centre of Edinburgh on the Royal Mile, there's a. Uh, uh, there's a monument called the Mercat Cross. It
0: was used for proclamations originally. It was it was a point where um, information was disseminated.
1: Mercat is market. And so this mm-hmm. was the market square. I think the original medieval Mercat Cross had become quite decrepit. And so he replaced it with a lovely new one, which uh, still stands today. And he was responsible for that. So there you go. William Gladstone does have uh, Edinburgh connections, but as far as we know, nothing to do with Gladstone's land. So there you have it and I think that's all we've got to talk about this I, week yeah
0: I think that's all we've got time for today but we will see you next no, two next weeks week. time
1: see two you week. next time You've been listening to the Gladstones Land podcast with me, Thomas Ware, and my co-host, Kate Stevenson. It was produced by me with support from the National Trust for Scotland. Our guest this week was Martin Webster, one of our uh, tour guides and members of staff at Gladstones Land. The music is Stabiles Apollinaris in Clicti, performed by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Gladstones Land on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, and online at www.nts.org.uk slash gladstones-land. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And do send us an email if you have any questions or anything you'd like to be read out on the podcast. That email address is gladstonesland at nts.org.uk. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.